Hi, I'm Rebecca. And first, I'd like to just acknowledge each and every one of you because you had a lot of choices about what you could be doing today or whose workshop you could be attending, and you chose this one. And I really appreciate that. And because of that, it is my hope and my intent is that each and every one of you leave with something empowering, something that you didn't have before you came into this room today. That is my hope for each and every one of you. As I uh, share my heart with you and share what I've learned about leadership and effective leadership and change. It was Isaac Newton that once said, if I have seen further, it's because I have stood on the shoulders of giants. And that's what Martin Luther King was for us. He was a giant. He achieved incredible things and we are the beneficiaries of all that he was able to accomplish with his life and, and his ideals and his vision and his goals. And we all are better for it and we all have a better life for it. And you know, two years ago in 2012 for Freedom School that year, Dr. Crystal Lucky, a professor here at Villanova, <clears throat> she gave the keynote that year. And during the Q&A portion of her keynote, <clears throat> a young boy, <clears throat> African-American boy, probably about, if I had to guess, somewhere around 12, maybe 14 years old at the most, <clears throat> he asked Dr. Lucky, he said, and this is my paraphrase of his question, but he said, what can I do now to pick up with where Dr. King left off? What can I do to begin now to carry his vision forward and make a big difference, make more changes, help make this world an even better place, picking up where he left off. And Dr. Lucky had all of about, you know, two or three seconds to think about <laughs> what her answer was going to be. And she really, she gave a marvelous answer, it was a very, very incredible answer to that question. And, but the entire time I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, there's something else that I want to hear in answer to this question. To me, I felt like something still needed to be said. Something was missing. And I didn't let go of that question in my mind. I held on to it. And I thought about that just about every single day. If I had to answer that question, what would I say to him? In addition to everything else that she said, what was it that I felt in my heart needed to be said? And it took me about a year to figure it all out and to realize that he was the one of the most effective leaders on this planet to implement or, or change in the way we were doing things as a country, not just as individuals. And he came up against a lot, you know, because he was dealing with a, a segregated South that I grew up in. I grew up in the midst of all of this. I was, you know, in, in Arkansas. <laughs> so I was in deep South, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And so I began to think, and, and I've studied the topic of leadership and the qualities of leadership. Um, for about seven and a half years, I started this quest as far as leadership is concerned. And when I realized that this is where I felt the answer also needed to go, I started to look at Dr. King's life, to look at all the qualities of leadership that he carried with him as he went about his day and went about his vision and went about his goals. 
And one of the most effective sources that I believe you could ever go to is not necessarily a biography, although those are good, and I think you should read them. But if you want the real truth, if you want to know what was in this man's heart, then you need to go to his words and his words alone. And you can do that with this book right here, A Testament of Hope. This is all of his writings, you know, or the majority of them, all the influential ones. His sermons are in here, all the interviews that he did before he was assassinated, um, the books that he wrote. It's all in this one volume right here. A lot of pages, small print, but let me tell you, if you want to learn who he was and want to learn from this man what he felt, what he thought, what his vision was, how he achieved it, this is the book to go to. And so everything I'm going to tell you today came from reading this book. And I've re read it, you know, I, I don't know, a couple of times. It's a big one to try to get through. But, um, and some parts of it three and four and five times. So this is an excellent source and that's where everything came from. As a matter of fact, you know, if, if, if by the end of the talk, if you want a copy of my notes, I didn't turn it into an outline. I left it as notes on purpose so that if you want this, you can send me an email, you can come up and get a card from me and I'll give you this. And I actually put the page numbers in here so you can, if you get this book, you can reference page numbers to my notes if you want to see where I was going with this, all right? So anyway, there's a guy, his name is Theodore Parker. He was a minister and a theologian and a philosopher, all of that. And he said, books that help you the most are those that make you think the most. And that's what this one will do. It will make you think. It will make you evaluate. It will open your eyes because you're going to, from his words, you're going to understand things that you never understood before. And the reason why that's important is because this is your world now. You know, you guys are going to be graduating soon and you're going to be going out in the world and you're going to be facing a lot of problems. You know, we've got problems in the economy, we've got problems in healthcare, we've got problems in government, we've got problems in education. I mean, you name the system, it's struggling or it's failing, and it's not just in the United States, it's a global problem. It's worldwide, and this is what you're going into. But there's hope. <laughs> it can either come crashing down around us, and we're at a precipice where it could do that, or we can be like, like Dr. King, Step up, take responsibility, look at the different areas, look at the ones that, that ignites your passion and go after thinking out of the box and finding a way to resolve the problems just like he did. Even if you have to go up against insurmountable odds against the entire country just like he did. So what do we need to do to be an effective leader? If you look at Martin Luther King, well first of all the man was just plain out, he looked good. You know, he was, he was young, he was vibrant, he was a very good looking man, he had a young wife, he had young children, he was just 26 years old when he led the Montgomery bus boycott, 26 years old. He had just become pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He was very well educated, an eloquent speaker, a writer, he expressed himself easily, clearly, forcefully, persuasively. And he had very clear goals. He had a very clear vision. And, but what him, set him apart the most is probably that he believed in making immediate positive action. 
He wanted results, and he knew he needed other leaders to join with him to do it. And he called them to action, too. And most importantly, he wouldn't ask anyone to do anything that he wasn't willing to do himself or that he wasn't already doing himself. He was a very genuine man. So according to Dennis Waitley, a, a man I respect a lot, a psychologist, um, he actually helps the Olympics teams um, when they go off and, and try for their gold medals and stuff like that. And he said, there are two primary choices in life. You can accept conditions as they exist, or you can accept the responsibility for changing them. And that's exactly what Martin Luther King did. He came to a point where he said, I'm going to step up. I'm going to accept the responsibility here. I'm not going to wait for somebody else to do it. But he was facing enormously big problems, and he knew it needed enormously big leadership. So he thought about this a lot himself. He had to take a stand in order to make conditions better for both the colored people and the white people. And he knew he needed to draw together the black community, bring them together as a unit. That was the first requisite. If he was going to have any hope of success, that he had to do that, bring people together and provide them with strong and firm leadership. Most importantly, he said, we must have faith that things will work out somehow and that God will make a way for us even when there seems to be no way. And he had a, a lot of times when he's, was, his back was up against the wall and he didn't think there was a way, but he stood on his faith. So what are these qualities? There's 18 of them that I'm going to bring up today. But there's even more than that. But these, I think, were the most important. These are the ones, if you have these 18 qualities, and the thing about these qualities of leadership is rarely is anyone born with all of them or even more than one of them. But they're all learned. You grow into these. And that's exactly what he did. And that's what I've been working to do. If I weren't doing that, I couldn't stand before you today speaking, and I couldn't even request them to, to videotape it, which they're doing, you know. <laughs> but you grow into it as you step up and begin to take responsibility. So let's look at these 18 qualities of Dr. King. And I didn't put them in any kind of special order. But the first one I'm going to mention is that King was, first of all, he was willing to show up. He was willing to step up. That's the first thing. You've got to be willing to say, okay, I'm here, I'm going to go, I'm going to do this. Step up and show up. You know, he, see, Dr. King, he, his, he didn't want to be a civil rights leader. He wanted to be a pastor, and that was his goal. And his dream, which you will find out if you read this book, was to not only just be a pastor, but at some point teach at a university somewhere, teach theology at a university somewhere or some sort of a school. That's what he really wanted to do. And even as a civil rights leader, he said several times, you know, when this is all over, I want to go back to just being a pastor. I want to teach theology. That's all he really wanted to do. But see, something happened. He took on that position at uh, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, and then a couple of weeks later or three weeks later or whatever it was, here Rosa Park is riding in a bus and her feet hurt. She wasn't thinking about becoming the mother of the civil rights movement, which is what happened, but that wasn't what was on her mind that day. What was on her mind that day, from her own words, is my feet hurt. 
And I'm sitting in the seat. I'm glad I can sit in the seat. And this white person comes on, and they're telling me I got to get up and go to the back of the bus. And I didn't want to. My feet hurt too bad. And she didn't want to get up. And so she refused, and she got arrested. And that's how it all started, because she was not willing to give up her seat. She wanted to rest her feet. And so what happened was this organization, the Montgomery Improvement Association, they started putting together the bus boycott. And they were going to do it for one day. That was their goal. In the meantime, about two or three or five days later, they appointed and voted, um, elected Martin Luther King as president of the Montgomery Improvement Association. And because he, his attitude was step up, show up, do what you need to do, he stepped right up and got right involved in that bus boycott. And when they had the first day, what they expected, well, they thought about, so they thought about 65, 70 percent of the black community would uh, obey the bus boycott. They were shocked to discover that over 99% of the people participated in the bus boycott. It was so successful, they thought, let's go for a second day. And that was just as successful as the day before, so they said, let's go for a third day, then a fourth, and then a fifth, and then on, and they just kept going. And then they decided, we're going to go until we get what we want. And I think it was, if I remember correctly, it was 381 days later that they finally declared, the Supreme Court declared that segregation on the buses was unconstitutional and they had victory. But right before that happened, the, the city passed a law or a, an injunction so they could arrest all the carpoolers so that they could put these guys in jail so that now if they weren't going to ride the bus they'd have to walk. And that was a very, very low and depressing moment for Dr. King. He was very upset but he held on to his faith. And it was that very day that the Supreme Court came through with their ruling. Quality number two for effective leadership and change. For him, it was willingness to take responsibility for finding an answer. It's not just taking responsibility, but asking questions and finding answers, and then trying to implement that and create those answers. And for him, one of the biggest things he had to deal with was hate. And so his answer to that, with this problem, he said hate is injurious to the hater as well as the hated. And he said love is the supreme unifying principle of life. Hate the deed, but understand the person and want only good for him. And he lived by those words. He marched by those words. That was the passion of his heart. That was his solution and he never let go of it. So you find an answer. The third quality is courage. You have to have a lot of courage, and not just for him, but others around him that he asked to join him. It takes courage to make changes in your life, to decide you're going to try to become somebody, be somebody, find solutions. And he had to go up against labels of degradation. He had to go up against dogs, batons, spitting, fire hoses, and even arrest. I think it was like 16 times or so that he got arrested. All of that takes huge amount of courage. I don't know if I could do it, but he certainly did at a very young age. The fourth quality is to be willing to learn from your mistakes. And not only be willing to learn from your mistakes, but be able to, 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 to have no fear of failure, 
to go ahead and make those mistakes, learn, and then fix things. And he cited an incident in Georgia, in Albany, Georgia, in 1962, when they did one of their first marches, uh, protests, um, but they protested against segregation in general. It was too vague. There was nothing specific, and so the march failed. And the result was it left a lot of people very, very depressed, people that were in the march and stuff. They were depressed, and they felt a great deal of despair because they lost. And Dr. King realized, well, my big problem was I wasn't specific enough. We didn't have enough focus. So he realized and he decided from that point on, every time we march, we're going to march for something specific, something that has value, something that has meaning, and that will be symbolic for something every time we get a victory. So they marched for integrating buses, or integrating the lunch lines, or integrating education. They marched for voting rights. They marched for very specific things from that point on. And the fifth quality is to say focused. He had a, vi a vision and he had a dream. He held on to that vision. He held on to that dream. And when they marched for something specific, he held on to that too. He stayed very, very focused. And he came up against a lot, especially in the beginning, because whites and blacks alike in the very beginning considered him to be extremist, and they considered him to, to the, and the things he wanted to not be very practical. I mean, how are you going to get a whole nation to change when all they want to do is hate you and tell you that you're less than, you know? And he said, no, I'm going to hold my focus. I'm going to hold my dream. I'm going to march. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to break down segregation. I'm going to stay committed to the breakdown of segregation. And they can give me whatever labels they want. And some of the biggest labels they gave him, they called him a rabble rouser. And they called him an outside agitator. That's what they called him a lot. And he just said, OK, you can call me whatever you want. I know who I am. And I know what my vision is. And I know what I'm working toward. The sixth quality was complete and total dedication, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what was going on. He was committed to the breakdown of segregation, and he stayed dedicated to that, and he would accept nothing less. He said, to merit the trust invested in me, I must be a realist as well as an idealist, with nonviolence as my weapon. That was the weapon he was choosing, nonviolence. I'm going to protest, but with nonviolence. And he stayed dedicated to that weapon, dedicated to his vision, dedicated to his goal. Quality number seven, he began to rally the people because he knew that there was success in numbers. And that's what he was going for. He knew he had to have large numbers of people marching with him, but he couldn't just get the people to come and march. He had to train them because he wanted people that were going to grab his vision and march with it. And that was nonviolence. So he had to train them. He had to teach them. He had to help them to, first of all, to step out of the dull monotony of their, the sameness of their lives and to try something completely outside of their box against the threat of dogs and spit and arrest and batons and everything else and fire hoses and do it nonviolently and not striking back if somebody struck them. He had to move himself and everyone from stagnant passivity 
to, and, and a deadly complacency into a determined, strong manner for non-resistance. I mean, for non, uh, it had to move them out of non-resistance because nobody was res resisting up to that point, move them out of non-resistance into non-violent resistance. And so what he did was he came up with a contract that everybody would sign and they would get the training and they got training, so much training and in such an effective way that it literally, nonviolence was integrated into their hearts. It was into their beings. It became a part of who they were and it became a part of, it was already a part of who he was. There's this one guy, his name is Willie Bolden. See, uh, Dr. King, he would, when he was going to go speak somewhere, he would get there early in the day so he could go out in the town and go to the places where the people frequented so he could meet people and talk to them, get to know them, know their name, and then invite them to come and hear him speak that night. And there was this one guy, his name was Willie Bolden. He was, he was a pool player. He made his living by playing pool. And here comes Martin Luther King walking into this pool hall. And he goes up to Willie and introduces himself and they talk. And the first thing Willie told him, he says, look, I'm a Marine. If you're going to ask me to go marching with you, i got to tell you right now, if somebody spits at me, they're going to be lucky if they have lips left when I'm done punching them. I'm a Marine. I'm not going to put up with that. You know, Martin Luther King didn't say anything. He said, that, you know, that's fine. Just come hear me talk tonight. <laughs> well, Willie did. He went and heard him talk. And then after Martin Luther King spoke, he said, Willie said, I was just amazed at this man because he had the entire place. The place was packed. It was standing room only. And yet this man had such an influence over these people that just with a gesture, he could get them to stand. And with a gesture, he could get them to sit down. And he was doing it all night long. They were standing and sitting at his will. You know, that's, that's how much influence he had when he spoke. He spoke with such authority. So anyway, Willie heard him speak, and it really touched his heart in a powerful way. So afterwards, he goes up, and he shakes Martin Luther King's hand, and he says, thank you. I, you know, that was really great tonight. And Martin Luther King said, Willie, I'm glad you came. And Willie was shocked because he met a lot of people that day, and yet he remembered Willie's name. And then a week later, Willie gets a call. And he says, I think Martin Luther King was in Atlanta that, at that particular time. Um, he said, but he calls Willie and he says, I want you to come to Atlanta. I want to talk to you. Willie didn't know what he wanted to talk about, but Martin Luther King said, come and see me. So he went. <laughs> he went to Atlanta. He goes and sees Dr. King. He's sweating. He's nervous. He's, you know, because <laughs> here this man's calling him. He gets there and they talk for a while. And then all of a sudden, Dr. King pulls out the Bible and he pulls out a book written by Gandhi. And he says to Willie, and I'm going to quote him here, he says, Willie, we're going to take these two books and we're going to turn this country from upside down to right side up. And I want you to be a part of that movement with me. Willie, and the whole time Martin Luther King was talking to him, he was looking at him right in the eyes. Willie said in that very moment, he said he could feel the fighter in him, the Marine in him, just leave. He became that nonviolent person that Martin Luther King, in that one instant, he could just feel it leave his body. And he said, Dr. King, I'll join you. And he marched side by side with that man many times. And that is how Martin Luther King 
got the people to join him. He went out individually. He spoke to people. He reached out to people. He didn't just get up on the pulpit and say, hey, everybody want to come? Come. No, he touched everybody individually. You weren't just a number to him. You were a person to him with a name and a purpose and a vision. He also rallied the leaders. He wasn't just getting people to march with him, but also leaders. There were all kinds of organizations at the time that he approached. The NAACP, the SCLS, the SNCC, CORE, a lot of them. You know, he went to these leaders, he spoke to them, he asked them to join him. And when he asked, they did. But he went to specific leaders. He didn't just go to anybody. He went to people he knew shared his vision, wanted the same things that he wanted. And not only that, but when things happened in their cities and these leaders would call him and say, uh-oh, we got this going on. Dr. King, will you come and help us out? He packed his bags and he went. So it worked both ways. He didn't just ask them to come and join him. He joined them as well when they had a need. So he rallied the leaders. The ninth quality is that he was very well educated. This man, he got a BA in sociology from Morehouse College. Then he got a BA of Divinity at Crozier Theology Seminary, and he finished it off with a PhD in Systematic Theology at Boston University. But he didn't stop there. After the degrees, he kept on with his, his personal education. He read, he self-educated himself every single day. He was always reading, always looking to grow more, always looking to grow himself, grow within, and move without. He was always Education is one of the most important things that you can do for yourself if you want to become a really, really effective leader. And with education comes the next quality, and that quality is creativity, to be creative. And he became a very creative man, especially a prolific writer and speaker. For him, it was in writing and speaking. For others, it can be, I don't know, teaching. It can be art, it can be music, it can be what, whatever your passion is. You get creative in that specific field. But, but creativity is very, very much needed, especially if you're looking to solve problems, coming up with new ways and new solutions, new ways of doing things, new ways of being, new ways of living, better things, better ways to do it, better ways to be it and live it and have it and experience it. The next quality is flexibility. You've got to be flexible. In his particular case, you know, and, and in everybody's case, you never know what's going to happen. Circumstances will come up to the left and come up to the right, and you've got to be able to, to, to respond to that and be able to remap your strategy when you need to. And he had to do that a lot because, remember, he's coming up against dogs and everything else, you know, people that don't want him to, to, to continue to speak out about ending segregation ending the hatred between the two sides. So flexibility is very necessary. And the next quality is patience. You have to have a lot of patience. In his particular case, he was going up against poverty and deprivation and degradation, and he knew that those things were not going to go away overnight. 
He had to give the government leadership time, and he had to give the politicians time to exercise what the court said was, was not constitutional and had to change as far as segregation is concerned. He knew it was going to take time, and he knew he had to exhibit a lot of patience, even though the court had already said that, that segregation in schools was, was unconstitutional. That ruling came down in 1954. In 1964, in Fort Smith, Arkansas, where I was growing up, the schools were still segregated 10 years later. That summer, my parents read in the paper that they were closing the black school and that all those kids were going to come in to the, our grade schools, our junior highs, and our high schools scared me to death. But now you have to remember, I'm just a little kid. I was in, going out of the fourth grade and into the fifth grade when this happened. And so I was scared. I didn't know what to think of that. I had, you know, I had seen black people before, but only from a distance. You know, when we would drive through, we saw their pool, we saw their school, we, you know, we saw, but I never talked to anyone. I never, there was never any close association because the Jim Crow laws had been in effect. You know, we, we were kept separated, you know. And, and I didn't know any better. I'm just a little kid, a little going into the fifth grade. So I spent my summer praying, oh, don't let them come into my class. I was afraid. That was fear. It was just fear. It was not prejudice or anything else. For me, it was just out and out fear of the unknown. I'll come back to that in just a minute. First, I want to move to the next quality, and that's determination, that no matter what, you never, ever, ever give up. Martin Luther was determined and he was not ever going to give up until his dream became a reality. Progress never comes fast enough for us, no matter what we're doing, whether it's Martin Luther King marching down the st street for civil rights, or whether it's you trying to learn how to play a guitar or learn how to juggle or play the piano. We want to play these pretty songs and it just doesn't happen overnight. You've got to be patient, you've got to be determined, you've got to be persistent and just keep practicing until you can make that beautiful music come out that you want to come out. The next quality is that you have to have great conviction and you've got to believe in what you're doing. You've got to believe in what you're doing and you've got to believe that you're, you're right in doing it. And Martin Luther King did believe in what he was doing, and he did believe that he was right in do it, doing it. Again, Dennis Waitley says, belief is the ignition switch that gets you off the launching pad. And that was so true for Martin Luther King. It's true for you. It's true for me. You've got to have a belief in yourself and a belief in what you're doing. And every time you take an action in that direction, it creates momentum. Dr. King recognized that the momentum was going to get big enough that at some point it was going to go global. He knew that when it got to be global, these are his words, he said, the rolling tide of the world opinion will play a great part in this and a great part in our success. Now, so here I was, a little kid, scared to death. These black kids may be coming into my, my class and I didn't know what to think of it. And so I spent the summer misguidedly praying, don't let them be in my class. Well, guess what? <laughs> Two black kids came into my class, a girl and a boy, and they were cousins, Wilma Faye Hogue and Troy Jackson. All right. And so think, Wilma's last name started with an H, Troy started with a J, mine starts with a K. 
and my, our teacher, Mr. Mullins, put us in alphabetical order. So not only did I get black kids in my, school, in my class, but I had one sitting to my right, one behind me, and then me. All right, so I was with them all year long. So now I'm getting to know them. Now the first day we go out on the, on the uh, uh, well, maybe I should back up for a second and tell you this. Like right around that time, they were showing in the news um, uh, a march. I don't remember what city it was in. All I remember is what I saw. And what I saw was a lot of people marching down the street and they started hitting them with batons, they started spitting on them, doing all of those things, but they took this hose, all right, this high-powered fire hose, and they turned it on this woman, this black woman. And when that water hit her, I was just amazed at how she just hit the ground and was just rolling down the street like she was dirt. And I'm shocked at seeing this and seeing her getting washed down the street by this high-powered hose. And in my little childish mind, because I didn't like what I was seeing and was scared of what I was seeing and f afraid of the pain and the hurt, I said to myself, well, black people must not have feelings. They can't hurt and experience that, so they don't have feelings. That was my <laughs> thought, all right? Now, I'm in the fifth grade, and here I'm sitting, and I have two people by me, and this is my thought in my head, right? So here's what happens. We go outside, we go into the playground, and one of the games we had to play is where we have to hold hands. And then the other kids run and they try to break your chain, all right? Well, guess who I had to hold hands with? Wilma. Had Wilma on one side of me. I don't know where Troy was, but so here I am. Now, my other misperception as a child, because remember, we were forced to be separated. My little mind, I thought, well, they don't want blacks coming around me because they got some kind of cootie. And maybe if I touch them, I'll turn black. And maybe that's why they don't want me to touch, and so that's why they got to use that water fountain and I got to use this one and stuff like that. That's my little mind trying to rationalize it all, all right? So now here we are, and now I'm thinking, the cooties, I'm going to turn black. I'm scared, but I hold on. We don't break the chain, but as soon as I have a chance before we make another chain, I'd let go, and I'd do this, wiping my hand, trying to get it, get it off so I don't turn black, <laughs> all right? This happened about three times, and Wilma, had had enough. She was so offended by this, she got right in my face, this close. I was never so close to lips in my life at that point, but there she is, right in my face, telling me all about it, and how I don't have cooties, I'm not diseased, you know, right in my face. And the first thought I thought was, wow, black people do have feelings, and I offended her, and I felt really bad, and I apologized. But it woke me up. It woke me up that there was no difference between her and me, just the color of our skin. So here we are. At that same time, Paul McCartney is sitting in a hotel room somewhere. They had just performed. And when they are done performing, no matter where they are in whatever country, they have to hide out in their hotel rooms. It felt like a prison to them. He turns on his TV. He sees the same thing that I saw and saw this woman rolling down the street. He couldn't get out of his head either. So then he goes to Scotland, and he's in his hotel room, and he's practicing this picking pattern he's trying to, to master, and he's thinking about this woman. Now, in America during that time, the slang for a girl was a chick. In Britain, the slang for a girl was a bird. Well, that night, because of what he saw and couldn't get out of his mind, and that picking pattern, he married the two together, and he wrote the song Blackbird.
So if you want to know what Paul McCartney was thinking about that back in the 60s, go listen to Blackbird on the White Album. One of the most beautiful songs you could ever hear. Anyway, on to the next quality, which is that he spoke the truth, and he spoke it from his heart. He was very eloquent, and not just eloquent, but, you know, seeking to change fears and suspicions and misunderstandings into faith and enthusiasm. He said, I don't have any time for doubt and faith, uh, 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 for doubt. I act on faith. And he said, and this is a quote, he said, truth smashed down to the ground will rise up again, undaunted. And that's how he saw himself. He spoke from his heart. He spoke the truth. When they knocked him down, when they put him in prison or in, in, in jail, all these things, he rose back up undaunted. I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep moving on. He was genuine. That's the next quality, genuine. He never, ever asked a single soul to do anything that he wasn't either already doing or willing to do himself. The next quality is a very high self-esteem. You have to have a high self-esteem to come up against those kinds of odds. You have to recognize and believe in who you are. He recognized and believed who he really was. You know, the world tried to tell him he was less than, that he was no good, and that he had a bad heritage. They told him he had bad skin, the wrong color, that he was mentally weak, and that he was a second-class citizen, and most of all, that he was disadvantaged. But he said, no, I'm not going to accept that. He said, no, I have a rich heritage. I have the mental capability to be strong and to learn. I'm filled with God and good, and black is beautiful. I can stand proud, and I can stand with a straight back. That's his words. He said, believe in spite of the circumstances, in spite of the faults, in spite of the weaknesses. He believed as a man. And he struggled with a lot of things. He struggled, I don't know if you know this, but he struggled with depression a lot, all of his life. He even tried to kill himself a couple of times when he was a teenager. Thank God he didn't succeed. But he struggled with depression. And he struggled with this onslaught, this constant onslaught of bomb threats and all to his safety and to his family's safety and stuff like that. And you know, when he was assassinated, the man was only 39 years old. But they did an autopsy on him. And they discovered when they opened him up that he had the heart of a 60-year-old man, even though he was 39 years old. He didn't let the pressure stop him. The heart was reflecting that, but he didn't let the pressure stop him. He held on to his high self-esteem. He held on to his ideals. He held on to his goals, and we all have to have those if we're going to really achieve the desires of our heart. We've got to believe in ourselves. The 18th and final quality that I want to mention is that he had dignity. He lived by a lot of the words that Gandhi said, and one of the things that Gandhi said was, be the change that you want to see in the world. And that's exactly what he did. He became what he wanted to see. His fight was for the rights of the nation. He personified racial justice within him. It wasn't just a philosophy to him, but it was a truth, and he saw himself as a man of social action. He lived it. He breathed it. He was confident and calm and quiet in it and believed in his future. 
a future and a philosophy of love, a love for the oppressor, a genuine, it was a genuine aspect of his being. There was a man, um, Kenneth B. Clark, that interviewed him. And uh, after that interview, he said that there is no way that one could tell by looking at Martin Luther King that he had exposed himself repeatedly to death. And yet, that by his inner sheer force of his personality and the depth of his conviction, he moved not just the South, but the North, the entire nation, and eventually influenced the opinions of the world. He embodied, he was the embodiment of that dignity which is essential for every man. That's what um, Kenneth B. Clark said about him, that he, he was the embodiment of that dignity which is essential for all of us. He brought t people together as individuals. He built networks. He worked to pull down hatred and injustice and wrong actions. He dreamed of a day where we would see each other on equal footing. Dr. King came to us at this from a position of humanity. He longed for us to live together, and he said living together means acceptance and connection, and that we teach each other, which is what happened with me and Wilma and Troy. We taught each other. It's scary at first. It was scary out on the playground with them, but it worked. We learned so much. We became very good friends. You know, it was the only thing that was separating us was fear. And the fear turned out to be nothing, nothing. It was just something in our heads. There were some Southern whites that really tried to derail Dr. King. They got some Southern anthropologists to do some quote unquote research. And this research supposedly said that white racial superiority and Negro inferiority were a biological fact. And that's what they were trying to push off on everybody. Well, King wasn't having any of it. He went to world scientists, and they refuted it with other research and said that the Negro blood, according to medical science, finds the same four blood types that's in all racial groups, no matter color, all racial groups. It's the same four blood types, no matter who you are. Well, fast forward to today, to Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor. Dr. Taylor wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight, and in there she talks about going down to the genetic level. At the genetic level, they discovered that we are 99.99% identical. Doesn't matter your race. If you're a human being, we are 99.99% identical, identical at the genetic level. We differ by only one one-hundredth of a percent. And it's that one one-hundredth of a percent that gives us the color of our skin, our hair color, our eye color, the shape of our body. It gives us all of our differences. And it's from that little one one-hundredth of a percent that we put our focus on and we get afraid of one another when we should be looking at the 99.99% ways we're just alike. We all have the same heart beating within us. We all have the same feelings. We all have the same desires and the same wants out of life. 
doesn't matter our race. If we're human, we're wanting the same things. We're wanting love, we're wanting peace, we're wanting to be vital, we want to be acknowledged and known and loved and to offer love. We want all of these things. Dr. King said our big, that his biggest battle and his biggest concern was the inner attitudes of people and the person's relations and expressions of compassion. He said we've got to look beyond the law books to one's commitment to the inner law that's written on the heart, growth and awareness of the basic worth of every member of the human family. And that means looking at that 99.99%. So to kind of quickly sum, him, sum him up, he, he sought answers to questions. We're going through these leadership qualities again. He sought, he sought answers to questions. He knew there was success in numbers of leadership and of people. He knew he needed bodies. He knew that the stronger the number, the greater the movement. He knew he needed good press. He needed to call attention to things. He had to have a goal to bring enlightenment and encouragement. He was an educated man and he continued to self-educate. He knew we needed both. He took positive action. He had focus. He had vision. He spoke out. He was, showed the way. He didn't just talk about it. He showed it. He led by example. He looked for mentors that were already successful and, in, 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 and for inspiration from learning from them to apply to his specific situation. He had faith. He was determined to keep going even when he was depressed and afraid or discouraged. He kept right on going. He didn't let it stop him. It takes courage. It takes perseverance. And he had both. He made his intentions crystal clear. He acted on his convictions. He saw truth the truth of who we are, that we were all born free, didn't matter your color, it didn't matter. We all have rich heritage. We all have a proud history. And for himself, he said, no more black stigma. I speak out as such and, I'm gonna, and, and to help people to realize that this was beyond, this goes into human rights. It was beyond his, even his individual concerns. It's about humanity and duty to stand up for freedom for all of us. So in the 60s, he was basically faced with a threefold problem, housing and jobs and education and some unemployment and some health care, but it was certainly not on the level of what we're facing today. Today, we're still facing all of those, not in the exact same way that he faced them back then, but they're still here and with us and prevalent today, but not just in the United States. It's a global problem now. It's all over the world. We're all struggling with the same things. Economy is huge struggle globally. We have to find answers to these. Now, Dr. King said, there is no graded scale of essential worth. There is no divine right of one race which differs from the divine right of another. Every human being has etched in his personality the indelible stamp of the Creator. And we each can solve these problems because of who we are. We're all, we have an individual thumbprint. We have an ability to step up, stand up, find our passions, find our gifts, our talents, our abilities, and apply them 
and, and live from our heart and find some solutions to these problems instead of just continuing to put band-aids on them or bell them out, whatever's the same things that are being done today that have been done for the past 30 and 40 years. Dr. King said, it's, it's, we're facing a challenge of a new age. He said it back then and we're still doing that today. That doesn't change. We're always facing the challenge of a new age. For him, and he references in here, because he was looking globally now, not just, just, just in the United States, and he says, at, during his day, there were 1,600,000,000 people on the planet. Today, what we are facing in our challenge of a new age is 7,200,000,000. Big difference. We have global struggles that are facing us every single day. We have our challenges. We have to rise above them as individuals according to our interests and look at that broader concern of humanity, just like Dr. King did. We have to achieve excellency in our various fields of endeavor. We have to enter a new age with understanding and goodwill and love and mercy and forgiveness, all the things that he talked about, at the center of our lives. And we can't sit down and just wait for it to happen and we can't expect the government to do it or for somebody else to do it. We have to get up and just like Dr. King, we have to take some sort of positive action, invest our finances for the cause of freedom, for the cause of education. These are the things that he was outlining when he talked about the challenge of a new age. Develop leadership, intelligent, courageous, dedicated leadership. Stand, protest injustice. Let freedom ring, he said. Determination, resistance, problems of na national problems, take responsibility for those problems, and take constructive action. There's no waiting. The time is now. The time is today. We've got to come up with these ans answers ourselves now. And to do that, we definitely have to have that good sense of self-esteem. We have to say to ourselves, he says, say to yourself and to the world, I am somebody. I am a person. I am a man or a woman with dignity and honor. And I have a rich and noble history. And I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something about it. So America's hope is you. America must change. And you and I, we are the ones that are going to define how that change looks, what's going to happen, how it's going to come about. Dr. King said, in order to do this and to be successful, the first thing we have to do is face our fears, whatever that fear is. And the only way to find out what that fear is, is to question it, look it in the face, and you know, and ask ourselves, why am I afraid? What is this really? Because we, with our imaginations, we can do either of two things. We can scare ourselves to death, or we can inspire ourselves to life. And it's our choice. We have control over our own thoughts. And so he's saying, question it. Question what you're afraid of. See, courage faces and masters fear. So if you have a lack of self-confidence and feelings of insecurity or inferiority, they're all rooted in fear. So look at those, find out what the fear is and get rid of it. That's how he got rid of his and that's how he became a man of great self-confidence, facing those fears. And third, he said, hatred and bitterness can never cure the disease of fear. 
Only love can do that. Now I'm quoting him here. He says, hatred paralyzes. Love releases it. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life. Love illuminates it. Fear is mastered through faith. Faith instills us with the inner equilibrium needed to face strains, burdens, and fears that inevitably come and assures us that the universe is a trustworthy place and that God really is concerned for us and concerned for our lives. He said, there was a 60s saying, that fear knocks on the door, faith answers, and nobody was there. And that's what he lived by. He told himself that all the time. And you see, we have a choice. See, he said that we, and you can read it in the Bible, that we're all created in God's image. But what does that really mean, to be created in God's image? I thought about that for 35 and a half years, trying to figure out what God really meant by that. You know, because God is not a physical thing. You know? And it took me 35 years to one day finally come to the point where I said, well, now wait a minute. God is the creator. And if I'm created in God's image, then I'm like a co-creator. I create too. And then I realized, wow, every day we create our lives. We make choices every day, and we create our lives by the choices that we make. We're co-creators. There's not a day you don't get up that you don't have a choice in this. You're either creating your life by design or you're creating it by default. And it's our choice whether we're going to create by design, by design or default. And so think about this. If you live to be 99 years old, are you going to live 99 years? Or are you going to live one year 99 times? A lot of people do that. And they go to their grave having lived one year over and over and over again 99 times. I don't know about you, but I don't want to do that anymore. I'd lived the first half of my life doing that. I'm not doing that the second half of my life. I'm creating by design now. I'm making decisions and I'm changing my life. Rabbi Heschel, he walked side by side with Dr. King. He marched with Dr. King. And, Dr. and Rabbi Heschel said many times, at every moment, there's always something sacred at stake. Something sacred at stake with the decisions that we're making. We can change anything in our lives that we want to by paying attention to the decisions that we make. That comes down to responsible leadership for yourself, for the people that you're around. We're getting down to the end. I'm going to skip all the rest of this and come back down to the end where I'm going to ask you. He said, he asked in 1967, at his last presidential address for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, he asked those people, he said, where do we go from here? And then he wrote a book by that same title, Where Do We Go From Here? And now fast forwarding to us and what we're facing today, where are we going to go from here? So I want to ask you some questions to consider. You might want to write these down because I think these questions can really change your life in a very profound way. The first question to ask yourself is, what do you really want in your life? What's your dream? And what's your vision? Take some time and think about that. What do you want in your life? What do I really, really want? What's my dream? What's my vision? When you get an answer to that, then ask the second question. To see your vision come to fruition in whatever areas that you need to do, in whatever, ever, ever, <laughs> let me start all over. 
to see your vision come to fruition, in what areas do you need to gain knowledge and expertise? So you have a vision that you want to come to fruition. What do you need to do to make it happen? What expertise? Leadership, Martin Luther King says, is caught as much as it is taught. Among the people you know, who models a life of leadership that you find attractive and inspiring? How can you learn from him or her? In other words, we need mentors to teach us, to stretch us, to help us to grow. So find a mentor that's doing your vision or something similar to it, your dream, and ask them for help. Ask them to teach you. Fourth, you've got to understand what your core values are, what you want out of your life. Do you integrate them into your daily life or do you merely affirm them intellectually? Figure out what your core values are. I want to be creative. Okay, if you want to be creative, and that's, then, then are you just affirming that intellectually or are you doing something to become more creative? You know, so find out what means the most to you. What are the core, what are the things that you value the most that you want to hold and implement in your life? And then ask yourself, this is an important question. This for Dr. King was one of the most important questions. He asked this all the time. He said, what are you doing for others? Because it's not just about us. It's about helping and serving. What are you doing for others? You have gifts and talents and abilities that no one else has. And you can create in ways that nobody else can. And you have passions and desires. And there are problems in this world that really only you can solve that are around you. And maybe even globally. We don't know. You're still in school. You're still learning. You're still figuring out who you are. But let me ask you this question. Right now, just around you right now, but eventually in your job and eventually however far you go out, ask yourself this question. This is a very interesting question. I love this question. What is my life the answer to? Because you are the answer to something every single day of your life and so am I. What am, is my life the answer to? If you get the answer to that question, then act on it. Dr. King says, Get positive action going on. After that, the next question you want to go ask is the same one that he asked. Where do we go from here? What is my life the answer to? And where do I go from here? What I do. What I do about it. Remember we talked about commitment being one of the biggest things, one of the biggest qualities to effective leaders of change. It's one of the biggest. But let me tell you something about commitment. Goethe said, at the moment of commitment, the entire universe conspires to assist you. When you commit to something, the answers will start coming out of the woodwork. It's amazing how that happens. You commit to something, and all of a sudden, the person that knows how to do it and you don't know how to do it just shows up one day. You meet them in a line somewhere, you know, as you're waiting for dinner or whatever. When you make a commitment to something, 
all kinds of incredible things begin to happen to help you in that endeavor. So don't be afraid to commit. Don't be afraid to follow your heart. Don't be afraid to get out there and be the answer. Because you are the answer. Your life is the answer every single day to something. You have passionate hearts, you have love, you have wisdom, you have life, you're young, you're vibrant, you're vital, just like Dr. King was back in his day. And you can do things as great as Dr. King and greater. We're standing on his shoulders. Who's going to stand on yours? What legacy are you going to pass down? You all have one. All you have to do is just stand up and commit to it each and every single one of you. You're special, you're gifted, and you're here. And you're champions, every single one of you. You were born champions. I don't know if you realize this, but you know, I usually tell a story. I don't think I have enough time. Do I have enough time for five more minutes? Okay, all right. I'm gonna tell you a story. It's gonna sound like a bizarre story at first, but just hang with me, all right? Just hang with me in spite of how bizarre it was, and at the end of the story, you will be glad you heard the story, all right? Imagine yourself back in Martin Luther King's day. The population of the United States, if I remember correctly, was, oh, what was it? Uh, it was, I think it was 800 million at the time. I think that's what it was, 800 million. Um, but imagine that you're, everybody's in one spot, all right, and we've all got to run a race. It's a marathon, not just any race, but a marathon. And you really, really, really want to win this race because the stakes are very, very high. Because only one person can win, and the person that wins gets to live. Everybody else dies, all right? That's why I met about Bizarre, okay? But hang with me for a second. So you want to win this race. You want to win this marathon, 26.7 miles, all right? And you're thinking, all right, I'll just go as fast as I can. I'll make sure I get out in front. And all of a sudden, the gun goes off, and you weren't ready. But whoa, it's off, so you start running, and you run as fast as you can. You, you manage to get out there in front, and now all you got to do is stay out in front. And you're looking behind you, and you see everybody back there, and you realize they're running just as fast as they can, too. i got to keep this up. You know? And you're thinking, surely they're going to start slowing down any minute now. But they never slow down, so you can't slow down. So you keep going five, ten miles. You get into mile 15, everything hurts. Your hips hurt, your feet hurt, even your elbows hurt. You know, Everything's aching, and all you want to do is quit. But you've got ten more miles to go, eleven more miles to go. And you can't let up because they're not letting up. But there's less people back there now. And you get to mile 20 and mile 22, mile 23. Everything's hurting now. It hurts to breathe. You can't get your air. But you keep going because you want to live, because you've you got to win this race. You want to live. So you finally, you get to that point where you're about 100 yards out, and you see the finish line. And you still manage to remain out in front. And you get excited. I can win this. And you want to speed up, but your legs won't go any further faster. They just keep going at the same pace and you look behind you and there's only about a hundred people behind you. you know? But you want to speed up and go and you just can't. So you just keep going at the pace you're going. And what everybody didn't realize that even the hundred behind you is that there's only a hundred behind you because everybody else, they were running just as hard but their bodies couldn't take it and they all died all along the path. You know? And then all of a sudden, here you are, you're running toward that tape, you finally get there, you break the tape, you win, and you think, ha, I get to live, I won! 
Now the thing about this race is, it's real. Not only is it real, but it already happened. You see, about 100 million sperm went racing toward one single egg. They all went racing against insurmountable odds, uphill, all the way, but only one sperm made it to that egg. And then nine, nine months later, you were born. Each and every single one of us, we come into this world as champions. There's nothing that you can't do, nothing that you can't achieve, especially when you have those qualities of leadership and you continue your education even long after you've left Villanova, growing and learning and stretching yourself and asking yourself questions, seeking answers. What is my life the answer to today, right now? What is my life the answer to tomorrow? How can I serve? How can I help? What can I give you? You can be as great and greater than Martin Luther King was. Just go out there, follow your heart, make the commitments. And I wish you all the best. And I'm here for you. You guys, you come and get my card. You need anything, you want anything, you call me, you want my notes, send me an email. I'll give them to you. Get this book, read it, be inspired, learn, grow.